Father, thank you for today and thank you for the opportunity to be with saints and um, thank you for this class and what your word said, learning what your word says about sin and unrighteousness and, and uh, having an understanding of those things that we might be able to do those things well pleasing to you in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this is our class and last class on homodiology and I think we'll make it through. I just had a few more things that we wanted to point out to you. Uh, we had gotten down to page 21. We were looking at, uh, we looked at the sin of the weaker brother and then fornication and then just wanted to look at this last thing of the execution of the new commandment. It limits the believer's opportunity to sin. So if the believer is spiritual and you are living as we ought to be living, as not seen as being lawless. This is a key thing that he says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And this is a common uh, statement that people will say. When you tell them that, hey, you can't sin in your mind or that you're living by grace. And and for some reason, people naturally think that you are teaching now that you just are used to live lawlessly. I I don't I don't get the correlation with that. I mean, I I don't understand how you would jump to that conclusion. Um, But, you know, the Apostle Paul had the same problem. There were people, as you can see in in, uh, Romans six. I mean, that was the assumption. He was already answering that assumption to people. Uh, so what do you say? That we shall continue in the sin nature, that grace may abound? So there is the assumption that if you teach people to live by grace, that somehow you're teaching people to live lawless. I, I, it escapes me. But it is a prominent thing. I was speaking at a place here not too long ago and uh, talking about grace. And the guy came up to me afterwards and says, oh, I thought you were getting ready to say that you're, you were antinomian. I thought for a second, and I thought, bah, I'm going to let this one go. <laughs> I'm not going to even get in. This is a temptation to get sucked into an argument. Because, I mean, if that got the fact when I hear someone say that, it tells me that they don't really know what they're talking about, that they really don't know what they're talking about. And so, you know, any, how can you derive and reach a conclusion that just because you teach people to live by grace, that you're antinomian? I, just, I don't understand that. So here you see this in 1 Corinthians 9, that um, Paul talks about how to relate, how he related to different groups of people in 1 Corinthians 9. And notice what he says. Um, he talks about his responsibility in the dispensation of grace. And he says, um, for verse t- um, 16, for though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation is committed unto me. Notice you said a dispensation of the gospel is really is entrusted unto me. A dispensation is entrusted unto me. What is my reward then? Verily then, uh, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. For though I be free from all men, yet I have made myself servant unto all, that I might gain more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law... As under law, that I might gain them that are under law. 
to them that are without law, as without law, being not without law, to God, but under the law of Christ, already in law to Christ, is what he's saying. Notice, why does he say that? That I might gain them that are without law, are really those who are, is um, nomads with that alpha prerogative, those who are lawless. So you have this contrast, so when somebody say, well, hey, we live by grace, then I can just do whatever I want to do. And so, no, Paul said that there's a different alternative. It's not that we're not under the Mosaic law, so that we're free to do whatever we want to do, but there is this relationship that we have to Christ, that we're in lawed to, really, and in another place you'll see it, the Christ. And so notice what he says here, and there's a couple of translations. The way that this is translated is really kind of weird, and you've got a couple of variants there that doesn't make it any better. But I, got up, I have up here a Darby, and he translates it this way. To those who are without law, as without law, not as without law to God, but as legitimately subject to Christ, in order that I might gain those. Now, he says without law here, but it looks like he's saying those who are not under law, but this word, it is, as it's used here, is those who are lawless, who act lawless. And we'll see that over in First Timothy. We'll show you in a second. So here you have another translation. I think this is the a- AVS. Uh, to them that are without law, as without law, not being without law to God, but under law to Christ. Or you can say in law to Christ. That I might gain them that are without law. Now I think here that, on, that uh, nomos with the alpha prerogative, those who are lawless. Now I like Ronica Rogers' definition under legal obligation that I'm under a legal obligation to Christ. Well, that's kind of tricky what he's saying, but what he's trying to say is that there is a relationship I have to the body of Christ that's important, and it's going to affect how I live. Because my relationship is to be pleasing to Christ. Now notice what he says. Well, I'll give you this definition. Um, If I can get it to change. Okay, that's, this is the definition I would give it. So, to be bound by a rule of life, doing that which pertains to a standard, right? That which pertains to a standard, right? And what is that standard? Well, you can see that that standard is related to, now he says here is Christ, but in another place you'll see it's the Christ, right? That I'm not just, just because we're not under law, we've been set free from law, I'm not just free to do whatever I want to do, right? And so people who say that, they really don't understand what Scripture says. And you could tell that they don't. And some of these statements that people make about antinomianism, I mean, what is this? This is a catchphrase that you've learned in seminary to bring up to people that talk about grace? This doesn't make any sense. And so... um, this word uh, is translated again, and you can see it used in Acts 19.39, and you can look there, and it's used of a legal um, term there in Acts 19. Uh, 
Now, notice in 19, this is Paul when he's in the, um, he's in Ephesus, and he's going through this issue where they uh, have dragged him into the theater uh, because he um, led some of these people to the Lord, and they got rid of their gods and weren't buying the trinkets of the goddess Diana. And so there was a big uproar, verse 35, and when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, you men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how the city of Ephesus is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter? Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, you ought to be quiet and to do nothing rashly. For you have brought hither these men which have neither robbers are neither robbers of churches nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open, and there are deputies. Let them implead um, one another. But if you inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. And this word lawful has the idea of in a proper manner that's done in a legal sense. And so this idea of that the believer is bound. You know, what's funny, though, is that there is nothing that says, you know, if you don't do this, most of your um, mosaic laws and the laws you see in the Old Testament are do this or else. There's a consequence. And really, you don't see any consequence to this. But I don't think we understand these kind of relationships. It's kind of like your relationship with the person that you your spouse there shouldn't be any consequences. You do it because you really care about them, right? I don't think people understand those kind of relationships. The only relationships we understand is do this or else this is going to happen. There has to be a consequence. <laughs> if there's not a consequence, then, you know, we, we don't know how to operate uh, from that point of view. And so this. Um, so going back to First Corinthians um, nine. Um, he says this law, well, actually go, go over to First Timothy is where I wanted to go. Um, he says this law, and there's another illustration of it, of this word for, to those without law. And I think here that word is used here, and you can tell um, those who are lawless. First Timothy 1, 7, I think it is. Well, let me see if I wrote it down. It's in First Timothy. One nine. So notice in, in um, uh, Ephesus, the problem was is that Paul told Timothy to go back to Ephesus and to tell those who were at Ephesus to stop teaching a different kind of Old Testament doctrine. And so notice in uh, three, he says that I besought thee to abide still in Ephesus when I was in Macedonia, that thou might charge them that they teach no other doctrine, a different kind of Old Testament doctrine, neither to give heed to fables of endless genealogies, which minister uh, questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. So do now, you know, if you're in your original, again, this is not a really good translation here. Even your NIV gets this a little bit better. They translate it rather than the stewardship from God, the one in faith. Well, that's closer than what they, they got here. And I would really translate it the way it's translated is rather than the dispensation from God, the one in faith. Now, the end of this, and that, so they were, instead of teaching 
how to live by faith in this dispensation. They were teaching, taking the Old Testament and misusing it. They were misapplying it. And so you see that heteros didaskalia there. Now notice in verse 5 he says, Now the end of this commandment is love out of a pure heart and a good conscience and faith unfeigned or really unhypocritical faith, which, you know, um, law cannot produce this. Show me someone living by law, and I promise you, I'll show you somebody who's a hypocrite. I guarantee you. Why? Because you have to be. Because you can't do it. And so notice, from which some have swerved, having turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor wherefore they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully, knowing that the law is not made for a righteous man. So no, excuse me, no quality of law is made for a righteous man. You realize that. The reason we have a lot of laws on the books is because people have the propensity to commit these acts. Now, people who act right, you're not going to have to tell them not to murder someone. They're not going to do it. And so people who obey the law of, on the road, you're not going to have to have speed limit, 70 miles an hour. <laughs> For most people who act right, they're not going to do it. Uh, so he says, but the, for the lawless, and there's that word there, those who are lawless, they act like they're not constrained by any kind of rule, Right? any kind of standard. And so they're acting as if they're unconstrained. I can do what I want to do, and you can't tell me what to do. And that, that's the word that is used over there. So Paul says, I became as one under law in order to reach who? The lawless, right? Or excuse me, in law to Christ in order to reach the lawless, right? And so that's what he's saying here. And so there's this relationship that we have to uh, Christ um, and notice one of the things that comes uh, from that is the fact that the believer is to love one another. And so the believer is bound by a rule of life. And one of the aspects of the law of Christ is seen in the believers bearing one another's burdens. So when you're preoccupied when doing this, your mind is not going to be on indulging in the sin nature. It's not. So notice in Galatians 6, now this is really an interesting uh, statement here. Because uh, you have um, two things that are said here, and they seem like they're the opposite, but they're not. So he's dealing with two different words here. So first of all, it looks like he's contradicting himself. In verse 2, he says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of the Christ. Right? So now I think that that's looking at the body of Christ and the fact that Christ is over the body. And he's operating the body, he's heading up the body, he's directing it, right? And that we're sub, uh, subjugated unto him. Notice in verse 3, for if any man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. But notice he comes back here and he says in verse 5, but every man shall bear his own burden. Now doesn't that seem contradictory? He says, bear ye one another's burdens. And then he says, but every man shall bear his own burden. Well, that first burden that's used up there in, in two 
It's um, a weight that someone is carrying. There are things that people are carrying and you come alongside of them either through exhortation or you know, some other means and help them to relieve a load that is unnecessary for them to carry. But there are other burdens, and this word talks about another kind of burden, and this is a load that one is expected to carry. And you can't help them with that. They have to carry their own burden there. Um, And notice in this first one, he says that when you carry a load that someone is carrying and you help relieve them of that, that you are fulfilling or filling up what's lacking of the law concerning the Christ, which is what? To love one another. And that's how you can see it, it. It's manifested. And then the last thing is the rule of life believers are bound to is uh, the commandment to love one another, which is seen in different aspects. So the believers to love one, an- one another, uh, excuse me, another believer as Christ loved a believer. Um, as you saw, and we looked at it in um, um, John chapter 13 and verse 34. We can go back there real quick and look at that. So he says, a new kind of commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another. Now, again, we we pointed this out when we went through this several months ago. So you have four different people that are in this. So you, you, two people, you love one another as I, Christ, have loved you. Now, another entity is brought into this. By this thing, verse 35, shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. So you have four different entities in this, right? The two people who are showing this love. Christ is the standard. Now, someone from the outside is going to see it. And so that's so easy to see. I don't know where this comes from that you're supposed to love everybody. I mean, I, I mean, you could just see it right there, right? That there is someone who is watching this, is the point. So love is having an attitude of mind and discerning uh, needs and making decisions on what's best for other individuals, doing something based upon an attitude of what's best for that individual. And it's not a necessarily an emotional thing. Um, and so I, I, you can see that what is happening most of the time, and you can do this, out of your sin nature, is you could have a fondness for someone, right? I mean, you, that's just natural, right, to human beings, is to be fond of each other, to, to be friendship. It's an emotional thing. You like being around someone. Uh, there is a connection that as the believer is spiritual that that fondness is directed in a certain way. By love shall uh, you shall have, by uh, love shall all, or the other ones loving, how did by love shall all, I left something out of there. I think it's all, know that you're my disciples. <laughs> yeah, scribal error. So the believer fulfilling the, uh, the, the uh, new commandment lays down his life. And so when a believer is engaged in doing this, I mean, you're spiritual, your focus is upon your position in Christ. The Holy Spirit is filling you. 
And as the Holy Spirit is filling up what's lacking and producing Christ's life, you're not going to be sinning. This is your focus. And so the people that say, oh, if you teach people to live by grace, you're just teaching them. And the natural reaction is that they're just going to sin. Well, we saw in First John that it says it's not a guarantee you're going to sin. It's removed right into a third class condition, which is not a, a guarantee that you're going to. Not to go as far as some people say is that you're sinlessly perfect. But the point is, is that it's moved further from reality. It's not a guarantee that you're going to sin. We believe that there is a way forward for the believer not to sin more than these people who call us antinomians. Because they believe you're sinning all the time, right? As soon as the thought comes to your mind, you're sinning. I, well, I don't believe that. I don't believe scripture teaches that. Now notice, and we'll close in 1 John uh, 3. In verse 16, hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought. Now, I find it interesting because there's several constraint words here. He could have put uh, aneke here. Aneke is someone is twisting your arm to do it. You are forced to do it. Or he could have used at least a lighter form of that and used the word de, which is it's, it's a logical necessity. But he doesn't use either one of those words. He uses a lighter form of the necessary words, which is the word ophilimai. And what does that say? It's what you ought to do. If you know what's right, you ought to do it. You are under a moral obligation to do it. Now, God's not going to come down and twist your arm and make you do it. But when you look at what he has done for you, that you're, you're under a moral obligation that this is how you ought to respond. And so how we're under a moral obligation to do what? To lay down our lives for the brethren. And that word for life is actually the word tsukas. And when you look at that use of the form of that word, it actually has the idea of those things that are important to you. Right. These things that pertain to what makes me feel good. That opportunities that when I'm directing love, that I'm going to put that to the side and I'm going to do what's in the best interest of my brother. So when a believer is spiritual and we're being filled by the spirit, it's not a guarantee that you're going to sin. You don't have to sin. And so there are some very cynical people today. And I don't think that they understand the term or what sin is. But hopefully we've tried to give you some things from Scripture that would help you to be able to understand and differentiate between what sin is. That you can understand what sin is. You and I can know when we're sinning. Please don't get on your knees or whatever you do and you pray, God, forgive me of sins all known and unknown. That's a cop out. We know when we sin. We actually know when when we're sinning. And so, and you understand that there are things that happen that are unrighteous. So we've, we've seen that, right? So I ask someone, when they say, oh, well, don't, well, that's not true. Okay, well, then tell me what is the difference between in Ephesians 2, 1, where it says, you has he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. 
So if you say that you don't understand unrighteousness, okay, just then just explain to me what is a trespass. Now, if I'll take it even further. If you say that sin and unrighteousness is all the same, then I would like for you to explain to me why does he say in 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of the sin. So forgiveness is attached to you confessing sin. But there's something else that people totally don't even deal with in that context. And purify you from what? All unrighteousness. What is that? Why does he have to cleanse me from unrighteousness? What is unrighteousness? Shouldn't we know that? Isn't that important? Why does he say that? So you can see that there, are a, there is a difference between these two terms as you understand them. It will affect your relationship to our God and how you govern yourselves here in this life. And I think one of the things that it will do, it will stop you from being guilty from every little thought that goes through your mind. And you'll understand what is lust, what is the sin, what is unrighteous, and how does God want you to react to those things. And I hope that we've actually covered that. And it will make you more able, more fit to do what God wants you to accomplish.